I watch TV shows based on, you know, if somebody like Michael Sharp tells me they're good. Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms or symposia or any other fancy artisanal setting. They happen at the bar, usually after deadline. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, a podcast about writing. I'm Dr. Brian Moritz. Today's guest is Doug Schneider from USA Today Network, Wisconsin. Doug Schneider, welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me this week. It's about time. How long have you been talking about doing this? I mean, at least, I mean, a year and a half. I mean, it usually comes up over Rudy's. Um, but if we recorded it at Rudy's, we'd have less time to eat Rudy's. <laughs> Great point. So it, it, it has been too long since uh, we have been talking about doing this for a while. And I'm glad to have you here. Um, got a lot of fun stuff to talk. Well, fun stuff to talk about. Interesting stuff to talk about. I don't know if... Uh, a murder, an unsolved murder, or solved murder is fun. Um, but before we get to that, just out of curiosity, how many times this this week or in the, in the past week or so has somebody asked you if, it, like, now for real, did Steve Avery do it? Shockingly zero. Really? Um, I, yeah, I, it was funny because that's all everybody wanted to know after the first season of Making a Murder, which we had it happened in our backyard and we've covered extensively um you know even even the radio host that you that that you tell you know i can't answer that question because i didn't cover the trial um you know that was that was their second question but now it's it's kind of like as, as we were talking before before we started recording it's kind of like a, a political debate um the audience already knows which side it's on and, and which side it it believes in and they don't seem particularly interested in, in hearing from the side who disagrees with them. Right. Um, and, and, and we'll get into what it's like to, for you to write about making a murderer and the case and the documentary and all of the, the stuff that goes along with it. Um, but first of all, um, just kind of wanted, wanted to let you talk a little bit about your career path. Um, and how you got to, um, you know, joining me at Rudy's every, every, every year to talk to my students at Oswego and working out in Wisconsin for the USA, USA Today Network, Wisconsin. Kind of, how'd you get there from here? Well, I'm originally from the Midwest. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I went to school at Syracuse and spent time, like a lot of us, at small papers, kind of working my way up um, around New York State. Uh, you and I obviously met in Binghamton. I spent 10 years there. I started as a, uh, you know, night top general assignment reporter, worked my way up to Metro editor and then special projects editor. And then uh, eight years ago or so, I decided it was uh, back to get uh, good to get back closer to home. So I knew the editor out here. He was a guy I'd worked with in New York. Green Bay is a place, uh, you know, we'd had a summer house up here forever. Um, you know, it was a, it was a good situation and it was great to be here. And I like the Packers. So that was, that didn't <laughs> hurt. But, uh, you know, typical, you know, newspaper career for 
for guys uh, in, in our age range, you start someplace small and you go bigger places. And if you do okay, you keep moving up. And eventually you find kind of find a, a, a community and a, a paper of the size that you like and, and want to put down some roots there. So aside from it being kind of like a, a personal uh, place for you and um, nice beat down your Packers gave my bills, although joined the club that year, this year, um, what, what about this market and this size paper, like you just said, what about that kind of spoke to you and what makes you comfortable at a paper in a market this size? The thing I tell people is that it's, it's big enough that there's a lot going on, but not so big that it's overwhelming. Um, and it helps that the quality of life is really good. You know, it's a, it's a city of 100,000, a county of about 260, but because of the NFL team, the infrastructure is built for an extra 80,000. So, you know, on a good day, my work commute's 13 minutes, and a bad day, it's 14 minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, those are, those are things that, that, that big city people will hate. Um, you know, it's not, you know, you don't, you don't have some of the big city challenges, parking, traffic, um, crime. Um, you know, we can, we can walk to things that we cover. We're right downtown. Um, and, and you can really, you can really do a deep dive in, into your beat when you're able to, to focus on your beat. The downside is that we're not so big that we don't have to cover a range of things and, and drop things and, and do different things. I'm, you know, I'm working on a couple projects right now. I'm doing a podcast, um, you know, I've, I've done some sports things, even though I'm not a sports writer, uh, but that, you know, that side of my brain and, and that ADD part of my personality is, is fine with that. I enjoy it most of the time. And you, you, you mentioned we met in Binghamton back in 2004 is when I got hired out there and you were there. Um, and we worked together for all five, yeah, just about all five years that I was at the press. Um, and looking back at, at your time there, and I've had a couple of our other former coworkers on the podcast as well. What made Binghamton such a? I mean, for all the Binghamtonness, and I and I make jokes about Binghamton like a lot of people, but it's an interest. It was an interesting place to work and an interesting market, an interesting town to be a newspaper reporter in. And from your perspective, what made it such an interesting? What made it a, a, a different, interesting, unique place to work? It was the best town for news in in which I've ever been. All kinds of stuff happened there. Um, some of it great, some of it horrible. I mean, we we both had a a front row seat for the the Division One basketball program's implosion. Um, you know, we had we had great stories. We had horrible stories. Uh, you know, the flood of '06, which was a uh, three 300 year flood um you know it's it's the kind of stuff where you can do great journalism work um we had a mass murder and i don't want to say i enjoyed covering that but it's the kind of thing where you can you can do journalism that makes a difference and, and again it's a community where it was big enough that stuff was happening and there was some diversity um, you know, it had some economic challenges, so you had haves and have nots. 
but it wasn't so big that you were uh, isolated from the people making decisions. I also think that, that Binghamton was a place, I don't know whether it was the size or the editors or what, but we had some, some very good people come through there. Um, you know, uh, Brad Heath and Steve Riley, who are both on the USA Today investigations team now, um, both both cut their teeth there. Um, it's funny because I, I, I had a little bit of a role in, in helping hire Steve and, and Brad helped me get hired. So um, there was that kind of thing. Um, you know, we tended not to have, it, it was a place that separated the, the people who were good and really wanted to, to work hard because it wasn't easy. And if you weren't, up to the task you found out pretty quickly and you probably decided to leave but the people who hung in and 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 did good work um were able to launch to you know metro metro dailies in detroit and baltimore and rochester and new york city and um it was just a very good environment we had some editors um the the guys who hired me were great about giving people a chance you know okay you haven't done done this before you know you want to be an editor try it out see what you think um you know if you're really screwing up they they give you some guidance um uh Elvier, a guy we both worked for who oversaw the sports department would you know would not take you know we can't do this because we're not big enough um you'll remember his vision for covering binghamton you was like you know hey cover them like they're duke right and that's a way, you know, even if you, you aim high, even if you fall short, you can still do some, some pretty darn good work. And we saw that where we, we wanted the ONA, you know, whatever the first prize was in 2009, even though we're, you know, we're like a 40,000 circulation daily newspaper, we beat all the big guys. Um, we clean up in the New York AP contests and, um, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was an energizing place to work. It was always interesting and, you know, there wasn't too much time to coast and I kind of like that. Do you, I, you know, I've been out of newsrooms going, going on 10 years now that, that kind of what you describe for a Binghamton newsroom, does that still exist in newspaper and news, newsrooms these days? Huh. That's a tough one. I'm, I'm sure it does. Um, I, I don't know, you know, specifically of an example like that. My, you know, my sense is in, in upstate New York, Glens Falls is probably like that just cause I, I know some of the people there and I see some of the product and, and they don't, they don't hesitate to aim high. I'm also a little bit removed cause a lot of what I do now is, is kind of projecty. So I might be, working out of the newsroom or, or working from home or, or something, you know, working from a, a conference room on a different floor. I, I'm, I'm sure it does, but, um, you know, some of the, some of the daily grinding has gone away. You know, the, you're not going to board meetings, committee meetings all the time because they just, they just don't generate a whole lot of news. Um, you know, the, competition competition is still there but i think people have a better understanding now that you know just because tv has a story doesn't mean it's really a story that 
that your readers care about. Um, you know, everybody's kind of on the, on the broadcast side, at least in a market like ours, is kind of locked into a format. You know, you, you know what they're going to do and the stories they're going to do. And, you know, okay, if it's a, a press conference or a political appearance, they're going to go to it and do it daily. But, um, you know, it's, it's pretty much, you know, Hey, we've decided that this is what our audience wants and, and we're going to deliver it, uh, for them. Um, I gotta, I gotta believe, you know, some of the, the sports websites and competitive environments are like that. You know, if you're at ESPN you're, or, or CBS, you're probably, you know, you're probably uh, sprinting every day. So the uh, one of the, the, the I know the big stories when we've we talked about this before we hit record, we've mentioned it a few times, but uh, the Making a Murderer series happening up in your neck of the woods. And I know you have a new podcast out, which is really good. Uh, I'll put the link to it in show notes. People should check that out. Um, and you've been writing about kind of both the ongoing story, the ongoing legal story and the kind of uh, the the hype around the documentary itself. But I want to go back because the the, the actual cases happened in like the mid 2000s and you were working in that's when we were in Binghamton so it's not something that you I'm guessing did you know anything about Steve Avery before this the 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 documentary stuff all started I I knew nothing about Stephen Avery until people said you really got to watch this thing called called making a murderer I mean it it happened in uh, one county over from us, and it was it was over and and done with a long time ago. I mean, we have in our group we have a Milwaukee reporter who covered the trial, but pretty much everybody else on the team is is new to us since then. And you, um, I, I think we started to get to this question earlier on, but you kind of tend to ask how things have changed. Um, the making a murderer coverage is, is a perfect example of that because it used to be, you know, if you and I are, are working in a newspaper in, in Binghamton or Olean or Oswego or wherever, um, your audience is geographic. It's, it's that county or that area code or that city or something. Well, now we've got a local audience that, that knows the, knows the players and, and, and knows the story, but we've also got, a national audience and an international audience. And so, um, you know, you might be writing for somebody in Australia as much as you're writing for somebody in Green Bay. And that, you know, it's interesting to, to have such, have a greater reach, but it's also a little bit of a challenge because, um, you know, just, just kind of being able to understand a place like Manitowoc County and, you know, this is how big it is and this is what the communities are like. Um, you know, if you're on the other side of the globe, you don't have any of that kind of perspective. So maybe if you're writing something or doing a video on that, you have to do some explaining, but then your local audience is like, you know, why are you telling me this? I know it already. Right. And, and like we were talking about earlier, uh, writing it in a way that's, kind of accurate to the area and doesn't play to the stereotypes that I think kind of, I don't know if they deliberately emerged or kind of uh, inadvertently emerged from uh, at least the first season of Making a Murder about Manitowoc County and what it's like. And like you were saying before, it's not necessarily what it's all like it's portrayed in the, in the, in the, in the documentary. Right. I, I think, I mean, I remember once, um, David Simon, whose work I love, um, said about Homicide or The Wire that, 
the city of Baltimore is a character in those series. And Manitowoc County is very much a character in making a murderer, especially in in uh, the first season, which which they call part one. Um, certainly there were images chosen to focus on, uh, you know, the, the bleakness and the barrenness and the, you know, absence of hope message that, um, you know, conveyed kind of the, the perspective from the, the, the people who'd lost something in that. But it's also, you know, it's a lakefront community. Um, you know, the, the ice cream sundae was invented in Manitowoc County. It's, you know, a place where you could go to the beach. There's some cool, uh, you know, cool places and things to do. And obviously we don't see that. And um, the people who live there is, as one would expect in a lot of cases, got very, very sick of being portrayed as, as, as rubes. And, you know, we only believe the cops and we treat people like the Avery's terribly all the time. Um, you know, that's, that's hard to be, you know, your sheriff's office is getting emails from around the globe and, and some of them are going to the mayor because people don't know that Manitowoc County is different from the city of Manitowoc and you guys are horrible and, you know, I'll never, you know, never spend a dime in your community and I'll just say bad things about it and, you know, that's, that's awful, but that tends to be the way things happen when they become larger than life and in their portrayed. And I don't think the filmmakers set out to necessarily do that, but, you know, you've got to pick a point of view at some point and the way they were trying to tell the story, you know, you look at the opening credits and there's, you know, empty farm fields and snow blowing across the road in a, a hulking factory that's no longer there with a school bus driving behind it. You get a, you get a very, very quick picture of it. And yeah, it's not the Silicon Valley, um, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very real community that's got, you know, got a lot of Wisconsin strengths in it, you know, a vibrant, you know, dairy farming, cheese making, beer drinking kind of, you know, all the stuff that, you know, Wisconsin prides itself on. There's a lot of good stuff there too. Yeah. I'm wondering, so what was it like when like the documentary, cause it was kind of a slow burn when it came up. Um, not, not related to the podcast with the same name, but, um, it was kind of a, it, it, it was the word of mouth that like kind of when it started to, when, when part one, as they call it, kind of started to, to gather momentum and, and get attention. And what was it like being up there and start, and, and do you remember kind of like when you guys kind of collectively professionally realized, Oh, this is a thing and we're going to have to start writing about it. You ever, you ever been on a, on a really tall roller coaster? No, and, I'm scared of roller coasters. That, so. Okay. If you can imagine that <laughs> there's a long, long slow climb to the top and the anticipation is building and you know you're getting goosebumps and your palms are getting sweaty and then you crest that 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 peak and all of a sudden you're bombing downhill at you know what feels like 90 miles an hour this was kind of like that um again off air we were talking about you know i'm not 
a crazy TV watcher. You know, I, I like to watch good TV, but I don't like to try stuff that, you know, I, it could bomb. So I usually wait for my friends to say, you know, hey, you should watch this series because it's, you know, you should watch Breaking Bad because it, it's amazing. And with this, you know, I'd, I'd heard people kind of talking about it, but then um, all of a sudden one day and, you know, early in the year, the thing had been out for, you know, I don't know, a month or so. One of the editors came by and said, you know, okay, we need to, we need to start writing daily stories on this phenomenon. And they had um, myself and a, a featured writer at our, at our paper at Appleton um, writing kind of, just just looking at what media was doing with this around the country and around the globe. And you're looking at this and, you know, there were days when you wrote, you know, you could find it, write a 30 inch story. That's basically just, you know, a sentence or two and a link to something that, you know, somebody in New Zealand was writing about this. And, um, you know, it, it was amazing. And, the page view numbers on, on those stories were, were out of sight. And, you know, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're, it's a month or two later and you're realizing that that's been pretty much all you're doing. And, you know, it's, you know, everything's just kind of whooshing by you because it's happening so fast. And, you know, every, you know, the journalists all over are looking for angles and, and they're retelling the story and then it becomes a, a thing where, um, you know, Reddit gets involved and people on there are, you know, they're plowing through thousands of pages of documents and looking for photos and, you know, oh, there's a, you know, there's a cut on Stephen Avery's hand in this picture. What does that mean? Or, um, you know, the, you know, ex-boyfriend on the, the sign-in sheet for the search is, his name is misspelled, you know, was he trying to mislead people and you're going, you know, there weren't enough hours in, uh, in the day to go down all those angles. It was like nothing I've, I've ever been a part of. And, you know, at times that, you know, you don't even really have time to step back and think, as you know, in a big story, you know, you don't, you don't have time to, you know, say, okay, how does this look for, from 30,000 feet? Well, um, you know, we, we were able to sort of back off the daily stuff and say, okay, a couple of reporters are going to focus on this. And then, uh, Shane and I, the, the other guy who was on the team, um, started working on a podcast and, you know, we put together a number of episodes. Yeah. The idea was to do, to be smart about making a murder and not, you know, have debates about, you know, is this guy guilty or not, but to pick out some of the issues it raises, you know, the, the interrogation of a mentally challenged 16 year old, is that, um, on unjust or does the fact that eventually the cops elicited a statement and admission from him, does the unjustified means and and things like that. And, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun. And then season two didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And then, you know, we kind of sat there and, you know, it finally dropped about the time we were starting to wonder if there was going to be one. And, 
you know, then, then we're back at it again. We just recorded another podcast episode yesterday. It'll drop, um, on Thursday, I believe. And we'll be cranking out a new one every week. Uh, as long as the interest is, is there. Well, what are the challenges, especially now that the story has been out there, um, and the documentary has been out there and there's part two now, what's the challenge for you? What's the biggest challenge about writing about something like making a murderer? I don't know if there's one biggest one. Um, a couple that come to mind, I, I, I mentioned the audience. Okay. Who are you writing for? Um, you know, I, I say I work for a newspaper, but in, in reality, I work for a multimedia organization and certainly most of our audience are in, in our audience priority is online. So am I writing for one of my neighbors in green Bay, or am I writing for people where we used to live in upstate New York, or am I writing in a, for people in a country that speak a different language. Um, so you periodically have to have that discussion with yourself. Um, there is, a, as there, as there can be with any big story, especially around ground zero, there is coverage fatigue. Um, you know, the, the last thing a lot of people in, in Manitowoc County or in Northeastern Wisconsin were, want to do is log on to the website or pick up the newspaper and say, Oh, here's another story about this. Um, you know, we, we all have stories like that. There are things that, you know, you, you get sick of reading and, you know, the, the, the day-to-day coverage of the president, you know, I, I say, okay, I got to read this because it's important, but you, you want to break from some of that stuff. And, and so, you can get, you know, that the audience is so engaged that people will send you emails, you know, I got this theory, what do you think? And like, well, first of all, I, you know, I didn't sit through weeks of trial and hear all the evidence and I don't know. And, you know, you're, you're way down a rabbit hole that I don't have time to go down and, and, my opinion really doesn't matter. It's up to, it's up to the courts. It's up to the attorneys. It's up to the system in a way, you know, we can, we can examine that and write about it. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't have the ability to test your theory that aliens came down in a spaceship, did something or, you know, I'm exaggerating, but, but there's there's some of that, but it's it's really as you know, a lot of what we do in journalism is is you're covering a story one day and you've never covered anything like it before, and you know maybe it's uh you know maybe it's the two thousand election, maybe it's nine eleven maybe it's a mass murder um what you're learning is you're doing and you're trying to do the best work that you can do and be respectful of your audience in terms of giving them what you need, but not hitting them over the head with things. Um, and then when you're done, you say, Holy cow, you know, I learned a lot. And now the next time it happens, I'm, I'm ready. So moving away from, uh, from the making murderer, um, and to the other thing that people know you for, uh, scanner squawk. Um, how did that start? 
it was the best of times. It was, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it actually started I, for the uninitiated, and you know, how could you possibly not know about this? It's a it's a hashtag that represents weird stuff you hear on the police scanner and police scanners are a staple of newsrooms everywhere. It's, it's how you get a jump on breaking news or you hear, you know, you, you get an early look if, if there's a problem developing in your community, you know, it may be traffic, it may be whatever. Um, and over the years, you just hear some ridiculous off out of context and 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 a lot of it is funny and so a a, a Gannett colleague of mine Esteban Para who's a veteran reporter at the at the, the news journal in in Wilmington Delaware started doing it and 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 he just has a great ear for all kinds of funny stuff and I loved it and you know started doing a little of that and well um, if you can imagine what the scanner sounds like when you've got 80,000 crazed Packers fans in a city of 100,000 on a game day, um, when, the, when the tailgating starts about the time the sun comes up, you can hear some pretty funny and, and, and pretty outrageous stuff. Um, and we started tweeting that. And, you know, people are jumping on board. They share it with their friends out of town. And, you know, you occasionally get the other team's beat writers retweeting you and things like that. And then one day I woke up and Deadspin had run a, won a, run a story about it. And my, my Twitter followers looked like the dial on an analog gas pump, um, <laughs> a Vegas slot machine, because, you know, very... Barry Pachetsky there, who's a, a cool guy, had decided to write about it. So a lot of people are jumping on board. And now it's – one of the great things about it is is this community has developed around it organically. Um, we have people, you know, an, an emergency room nurse from, from Minnesota does, you know, an over-under and odds on the first state that the, you know, of the person who's going to be ejected for <laughs> – um, a guy composes haiku, um, and uh, there's actually a guy, he's a crime novelist in Finland who will take the best tweets and translate them. <laughs> so per- periodically during the day, you know, somebody will say, hey, hey, Yarko, you know, a cop just used the term puke people. What? what will that look like in finish? And, you know, a couple minutes later, it'll come back with a tweet and it's, it's just amazing. And it's been great. You know, I've gotten to, uh, to meet some people out, you know, somebody, I was at a ball game once and a guy's like, Oh, you know, let's take a selfie. And I'm like, wow, you know, this, this thing has really gotten out of hand. And I, I used to do it kind of in my spare time, but eventually my employers are like, Hey, you know, let's, um, you know, let's dedicate some time and space to it because it's it's just one more way that people can engage around the Packers. And if you haven't, I mean, you know, maybe maybe South Bend is like this around Notre Dame football. Maybe maybe Tuscaloosa is like this with Alabama. But 
you know, central New York, you, you take like Syracuse fandom and, and multiply it by at least a hundred and, and, and maybe more. Um, so it's, you know, it's one more people can, one more way people can connect around the team and we have a good time with it. You know, it's, we ignore the occasional troll from the out of town markets and, you know, we're nice to opposing fans and things like that. It's just been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, met, met some people, made some friends and, you know, it's a chance to do something different and invariably there's just some weird tweet. You know, I, uh, a friend, a friend tweeted me yesterday and said, you know, it's, uh, the seventh anniversary of the scanner squawk where somebody called the cops to complain that, uh, an engineer had parked his locomotive and walked over to a bar to get drunk. <laughs> and, it, and, and some of it, you know, it's just, it's the Wisconsinness of things. I mean, we, you know, people, there, there's a reason beer is brewed here. Um, cause it's, it's, it's a market and, and people really like to have a good time and they don't mind doing it in the, the cold weather. And you get a lot of, you get a lot of funny stuff, but it's also a chance to get a message out about, you know, hey, if you've, if you've had too much, here are your options for getting home and, you know, be respectful of the other people in the stadium because you've got, you know, you, you've got the element of, you know, idiots like you have at any NFL game. Um, and, you know, you try and, you try and tamp that down and remind people that they can have a good time without wrecking it for others and, you know, hope it doesn't go too far, but it's become a thing, and uh, we'll do it for the foreseeable future. I ask everybody I have on the show this, so I'll ask you, what's the best thing you've read lately? There isn't one best thing. Aha, I get another qualified answer. I mean, <laughs> I, I I think that the, the work that the Times did on, I'm, I'm not going to go straight books because everybody does that that the times did on the Trump family's finances. Oh, and, that was so good. Amazing reportage. I think they could have packaged it better. Um, it might've worked better across a couple of days and they probably should have shared excerpts ahead of time. Um, but it was just tremendous reporting. Um, the, the post has done good stuff to, you know, read the story about the, about the guy with the, you know, opiate addiction that developed from a chronic injury. And now he's, you know, driving across the state of Washington once a month to, to see the one pain specialist who will still see him. And she's about to go out of business. Um, the athletic, your favorite website did a tremendous look at, you know, four days on the road with a crappy East coast hockey team in the middle of winter. Um, you know, fantastic read by a kid, I think is all of 22. Uh, I, I know it's, it's a list and I apologize. You can't pick one. You had Perlman on his, his book about the, the USFL is amazing. It's so good. I'm in the middle of it right now. It is so, so good. It, it really is. I, I'd read cause I knew he was working on a book on Favre. So I grabbed his uh, Dallas Cowboys book, and that was amazing. You know, if you need a reason to dislike the Cowboys anymore. Um, and I still haven't read the Favre book because every time that somebody in our office finishes it, somebody grabs it. I've, I've never seen a guy report like that in a book. 
Um, I try and, and vary, vary what I'm reading. So I grabbed um, an investigative work when I was down in New Orleans called Shots on the Bridge. It's about um, the cops who went rogue post-Katrina, um, written by a guy named Ronnie Green. It's, it's, it's terrifyingly good. And then in a cop bin, I found something called Chasing Phil, where a guy got a couple hundred pages about two young FBI agents who go on the trail of like the world's best and nicest con man. And they're, you know, with a garbage assignment, you know, it's like, hey, we got to throw the interns on this. So we'll give them this and keep them out of our hair. And they start making headway. So they stay on it and they build a case and over and over and over. It's just a, it's a wonderful read about a really weird thing. So a lot of good stuff out there. Now I, I tend to read in fits and starts and lately I've been a little bit exhausted, so I haven't done much, but there's, uh, oh, the thing I should have mentioned USA today piece a couple of weeks ago about a day in the life of teachers around America. Read that. It will, uh, it, it will, eliminate a lot of stereotypes about teachers um and there's there's some amazing anecdotes in that so a lot of good stuff out there what what's the best thing you've read um so the the perlman book i'm in the middle of about three different books right now so the perlman book is definitely one of that i am going to finish on this run from the library grant by chernow I've been reading that thing for most of the year, and it's splendid. It's a beautifully done book, but it's well over a thousand pages uh, before footnotes, um, and so the, that's just the uh, that and it's small type, thousand pages too. So that's just that's just work getting through, kind of physically. But those are the best two things that I've read. I have seen, you know, on the athletic. Um, let's throw a, a story out here. Matthew Fairburn, who does great work covering the Bills. Um, he's been a guest on here. He did a breakdown with Joe Licata, who's a former uh, UB University of Buffalo uh, quarterback, um, and like does some coaching and stuff. And they did a film breakdown of basically why the Bills' quarterback play in the Texans game was so awful, and like what he's seeing from Josh Allen in the in the pocket, and broke down that that Peterman six pick six. And I just I think that's a really great way of covering uh, of of writing uh, about football and about writing about sports that's not um, not widely done. You know, you, you kind of get an independent person to look at because you can get the All-22, the, 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 the coaches film, and have them break it down and kind of see, like, no, you, you don't know for sure, obviously, but this is the expert, an expert opinion watching this. This is what they see, and it's some really good... Um, it, it's just, it was really well done. I think it's a really interesting way to, to, to look at, you know, to further break down a, a game and a, a, something we've been talking about for four days now, but it does it in a, you learn something from reading that, which I thought was really cool. No, I, I think that's a great point. They, they do take a smart approach to things like that, and that's something that their platform lends itself to. Definitely. Uh, Doug, this was a lot of fun catching up. I appreciate you taking the time this week. Yeah, let's do it again sometime or uh, at least uh, hit Rudy's in the spring.
As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 